Well, good morning, church. Uh, joining us here in person and online, it's uh, it's great to be together again, isn't it? Let's start with a little bit of a thought experiment this morning. Uh, I want you to imagine for just a moment uh, the happiest, most joyful person that you know. I don't mean somebody who's sentimental or or syrupy, but authentically joyful. Can you think of somebody like that? They're grateful in their life. They have a confidence in God. They're optimistic in the way they face the future. They just kind of breathe life and energy into you. They're that kind of a person. Who would not, who would want to spend time with that sort of a person? I have a couple people like that in my life. I got to spend time with one of them during the week, and it was uh, it was rich. It was life giving. And I'm going to introduce you to one of them this morning in just a minute or two. You have somebody in mind? Now, let's do the alternative. I want you for just a moment, we're not going to linger on this, but for just a moment to imagine the unhappiest, most joy-starved person that you know, negative, bitter, pessimistic, always saying no, just kind of a a self-appointed martyr to the world. Think about that person. Don't say anything to them. Don't elbow them in the ribs or look at them right now, but just, just think about them for a moment. Okay? Now, think a little bit about places. What is the happiest place on earth for you? Lakeside cottage? Shore of the ocean? Secluded chalet? Maybe, hey, maybe right here this morning. Could be your own backyard garden. Could be Disneyland. But myself, I think the idea of going to Disneyland is, well, a little overrated. I, I think I love the idea of going to Disneyland more than I actually like being in Disneyland because it's, we've been a couple of times. It's always 120 degrees, right? The lineups are an hour and a half long. Costs about as much as a used car to take a family there. There's this great quote, Charlotte Bronte, who said, life is so constructed that the event does not, cannot, will not ever match the expectation. (laughs) Like Disneyland's like that. And then I was thinking a little bit about our church this week. I was thinking, what, what what if our church, what if the church became known as being the happiest place on earth? What if the church became famous for joy. What if this is a place where you could come thinking, I'm going to fulfill my God-given capacity for joy by being here? What if anytime somebody dropped in on an event, activity, a gathering here in the church, they could be an outsider, a stranger, could be brand new to this whole thing, don't know anything about the Bible, nothing. Maybe they feel like life is messed up for them, but they came in here and they just felt joyful. And they felt they were surrounded by people who genuinely enjoyed being together and were, were overjoyed that somebody else had come to be part of what was going on. What if people heard the word Christian and instead of thinking judgmental or proud or hypocritical, they just thought, hey, joyful. Those are some of the happiest people I know. I enjoy being with them. They can laugh at themselves. They can laugh with each other. Aren't we hungry for that? In the world, we're just hungry for it. And it seems 
so elusive. I mean, it's almost poignant the lengths to which people will go to try and find and sustain that kind of joy. Well, there are people who do it for me. And you meet some of those people every week. They get up extra early and they make sure that they are here to welcome you. We call them our gateway team. And I promise you, they are the best of us. Because the smile they wear isn't painted on. I, I see them in and out of activities through the week. It's, it's always there. It goes deep. And I want you to meet one of them this morning. I'm going to invite, invite my friend Tayo Adebayo to come and join me. Tayo has a capacity for joy that I think is, is unparalleled. I know that it goes deep in her because it goes deep in her whole family. They just they kind of radiate joy. So I've invited Tayo to come and, and share a little bit about the capacity for joy, joy in the Lord. Um, I was asked to speak about what the joy of the Lord means to me. So I'm going to start by saying the joy of the Lord is my strength. Um, God gives me strength every day. Uh, the Bible, I mean, sorry. <laughs> um, God's strength means by praying. I pray to God a lot. I, sometimes it's just short prayers. Sometimes it's long ones. Uh, it can just be, God help me. God have mercy. Or sometimes it can be like 10, 20 minutes prayers. So by speaking to him, I'm in constant communication with him. And then I listen to his word also, read the Bible. That also helps. And uh, it always makes a way. It always is always there for me. The Bible tells me also that I should trust in the Lord and do not lean on my own understanding. In all my ways, I should acknowledge Him. So I do that all the time, and it makes my way straight. I find, also find joy by um, listening. Sorry, yeah, straight. <laughs> I was. I find joy when I talk to God. Prayer means that I can, and I am communicating with God. I can talk to him about everything. I can talk to him anywhere, silently, when things are great, when there are challenges. And also, I know that God is always there. I also, one of the other ways I find joy is by thank, being thankful. Just saying thank you to God, you know, it makes me happy. Then I'm grateful. I show gratitude. And I like, I love to sing his praises. I love to sing. I love singing and also listening to gospel music, especially Nigerian gospel music, uh, because they have a way of describing God and praising God that when you translate it into English, it lost some meaning. You know, like they are very descriptive about the way they describe God. And before you know it, I get up. Before I know it, I will get up and start to dance. And when I dance, I'm happy. And also, it's another way to praise God. Uh, I always picture God rejoicing over me when I dance. I love this verse in, that in the Bible that says, "The Lord your God is in your midst; the mighty one will save." He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. So when I dance, I'm picturing God dancing with me and, you know, being happy. And so that makes me happy also. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, I'm, and also, um, one of the other things I know is people are praying for me. I am loved. I am loved by, by my parents, my family. I'm loved by my church members and friends. And also, I have... Um, 
prayers. Prayers work. My mother is a prayer warrior. My mother prays. My father also too. I shouldn't leave him out. But my mother loves to pray. That's her. She tells me, I don't have any other job but to pray for you, my children. So she loves that. So that's knowing that I'm always being prayed for. That's also gladdens my heart. And I know that God is always in control. No matter what happens, God is here. The challenges are there. So I'm going to leave by saying a prayer, saying that may God grant us his peace that passes all understanding, and he should grant us joy unspeakable, and fill our hearts with his love and hope. God bless us all. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. Hey, can you do this on the way out of service? Uh, would you just say thank you to Tyler? and Lori, and Ozzy, and Ken, the whole joyful bunch of them that are there every week. This is probably the best day for Tyone. and I'll tell you why. Um, the clock change meant she didn't have to get up at 7.30 a.m. this morning to be in from Orange every week to be here long before you are here in order to welcome you into the house of the Lord. For the past six weeks... We have been considering the call to holiness. Sheldon led us in prayer about that subject. What is, what is the life that God desires for his people? What are the marks of a person who has become mature in Christ? And we focused on that one word that the Bible uses, uses repeatedly to describe Christian maturity. It calls us the holy ones of God. The word is saint. And that language of holiness or of sainthood, which is so unfamiliar, so archaic to us, so often restricted just to these great religious heroes of the past, the ones that get set in stained glass or carved into statues and and sort of relegated to ancient cathedrals. That was meant to be a living testimony to the lives of all of God's people as they grow day by day on this remarkable journey of holiness. You saints of God. I hope after six weeks, uh, that's not a, a, a label that you would go running away from. It is your birthright in Christ. The, the gateway is wide open, you know, for anyone to come in. Come on in, Jesus says. Be part of this thing is, that God is doing. But it's not open for people to come in and stay the same. You come in, and then day by day, your life is transformed. There's this tantalizing invitation that Jesus gives. He says, hey, I want you to be holy, just as I am holy. And against that, we have this theme verse. It's been the backdrop for our whole series. We introduced it six weeks ago on week one, Colossians 1. 28. Let's bring it up on the screen, Colossians 1, 28. Let's read this together one last time. We proclaim Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's the goal, fully mature in Christ. And the word the Bible uses for that, again, saint. This is the journey of holiness. What does it look like? Well, we've looked at four marks of the mature Christian. The first, a holy person is a wise person. We call that sapiential holiness. I guess because we could, because it sounded like a wise word to use. Uh, 
Holy person does good work, vocational holiness. A holy person loves other people in a manner that is consistent with the way that God has loved us. That's social holiness. And now today we come to the capstone, to the final mark of a person who is mature in Christ. And it is quite simply joy. A holy person is a joyful person. It ought to be reflected in our bones, in our disposition, in our emotions. This takes us into the realm of emotional holiness. Gordon Smith writes this. That's the little book that some of you have been following in your small groups related to the series. Smith says, joy is not one of the components of Christianity. It is the tonality of Christianity that penetrates everything. This is not just an appendage or an add-on. This is into the fabric of what it means to be a holy person in Christ. It's not incidental to our lives. It is an indicator of a mature faith, one that is grounded in our identity in Christ, grounded in and rooted in our relationship. It's, it's why when the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, joy is right there at the front of the list. Joy is a mark of holiness. It arises from the other things, a life lived in wisdom, It arises in the lives of those who have a vision and passion for good work, vocational holiness. It arises when we have a capacity to love as we have been loved. But most of all, Christian joy is rooted in and gives the evidence of that union in Christ. Remember that phrase? We've been using that phrase as often as we can to get it drilled down deep in our souls. We are in Christ. Christ in us us in him. In fact, that was the promise of Jesus. Remember John 15, verse 4? This is what it looks like. He says, abide in me and I abide in you. But if you go on, Jesus says that relationship yields a promise. And here's the promise. What happens when I abide in you and you in me? Jesus says, my joy gets into you. It's infectious. And it makes your joy complete. There is, quite simply, nothing like it. Because we were created for joy. The happiness that so many of us seek, that often is elusive and, and impermanent, it is found ultimately here. And ironically, those who will spend their life, devote their time and their energy and their resources to the pursuit of pleasure, often will find themselves missing it. Because true joy is the byproduct of something else. If you aim for pleasure, hedonism, you know, pursuit of pleasure, you will miss it. But if you aim for this, you'll find that joy gets added in. We call this the happiness paradox. It's a paradox. And here it is. The happiness paradox is... is Well, we could define it this way. If you make happiness your primary goal, you'll never really be happy. Instead, happiness exists, joy exists as a byproduct of something else. What is it? Holiness. If you aim at living a holy life, a life rooted in Christ, you will find joy along the way. I promise you. 
And closely related to, related to this paradox, there is, you could call it, the happiness illusion. And the illusion is that joy is somehow rooted in our circumstances. And when our circumstances go south, so does our joy. The happiness illusion is this, that if I had just the right circumstances, the right job, the right relationship, the right salary, I would be happy forever. Of course, we never get that, do we? Circumstances never align just so. And it turns out that there is something way more important way more significant than happiness that goes up and down based on our circumstances. And it's what we are calling the holy life, the life in Christ. Now, I I realize when I say that, some people think, well, that's life in a monastery. It's absolutely not. I mean, it could be, I suppose. But no, no, this is life as it penetrates every area of society. But it's the awareness that, that God is with you in it. And you are with God, and, and there's just an enmeshment there. And how can there not be joy when that is real for you? There is a difference between the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of happiness. Because it turns out that happiness, without any deeper meaning, is just this shallow, kind of self-centered thing. People think, I'm going to be happy if everything goes my way, I'll be happy when my needs are met. I'll be happy when my desires are satisfied. I'll be happy if I can avoid pain and just get good things in my life. And so I focus, as a result, exclusively on myself and ordering the circumstances of my life to avoid pain and achieve pleasure. So I don't have a job, and I think I'll be happy when I get a job. And then I get the job. And there's pressure and stress and challenges, and so I think I'll be happy when I'm done my job, (laughs) when I can finally retire. Strange thing, though. There's studies on this. People retire, and what usually happens is happiness goes up just a little bit, like a blip, and then it comes crashing down. Why? Because suddenly purpose is missing. Vocation is missing. Because if your vocation, your call in life was linked only to your paycheck, Well, then what's next for you? People get a chunk of money and they think, listen, I've I've got it now and that will make me happy. And so they get it and they spend it. Bigger house, a nice new ride, you know, chill car, a trip. Happiness goes up for a moment, but not holiness. And then, then it comes crashing down. People think, you know, if we just have some kids. Listen, I know, you know, for, for couples who are trying to start a family, this, this is, really sensitive ground. But we imagine somehow that the circumstances of our lives you know, will improve when, when we get some kids in the house. And maybe they do. I'll just be happy if I get some kids. Uh, but then the kids get in the house. <laughs> right? And then you spend the next 20 years thinking, well, how much longer until we can get the kids out of the house? And so the happiness comes back again. It turns out that God has made us in such a way that real, life-lasting, sustainable joy comes only as the byproduct of something else. And it is a life rooted in relationship with him. We call that holiness. When, when your life, the trajectory of your life, parallels 
the way that God has designed you. Called to the purposes for which you were made. Living with the wisdom that is your birthright. Living with the kind of relationships, the quality of relationships that reflect the way God has loved you. The byproduct is joy. And if you aim only at pleasure, only at happiness, chances are you'll miss out on both. Both on holiness and on joy. And if you want to reach your potential as a follower of Jesus, we want to reach it as a church, we want to each reach it as individuals, we're actually going to have to wrestle deeply with what constitutes a holy life. And we'll have to talk about what prevents it. There is that passage uh, that Harry read for us. Again, this is Harry, everyone. Last time we saw Harry, Harry's you know, deep boy. Way to go, Harry. What a great reading voice he has. But there's this passage from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, where Jesus really confronts the happiness paradox. And nothing confronts the paradox of happiness quite like pain, quite like suffering. Suffering may be powerless to stop the holy life, but it will stop the happy life flat in its tracks. I mean, any thoughtful person will come to a place in life where they have to ask, with this much suffering and this much pain and and these many trials, is it even right to talk about joy? And yet, when you look at human beings, and I hope you've seen some and know some, and maybe you are one, when, when you look at examples in the Bible, you'll find this oddity. You will find people who have joy present in their life, Edmund, even in the midst of great suffering. It's unstoppable in them. The test, one of the tests of authentic joy is it is still compatible with deep suffering. It's kind of like, we got a nasty driveway, right? And there are, there are flowers and grass and weeds and stuff, and it just keeps coming up through the asphalt, through the concrete. Nothing stops it. It doesn't matter how much you heap on it, up it comes. You can burn it out, it's back again. Joy is like that, okay? Not that joy is a weed, but joy is unstoppable. No crushing weight is getting rid of it. You just can't keep it down. So this is how Jesus speaks to the question. This is a favorite text of mine. Anybody who's been to the church for a funeral, knows how much of a favorite text this is of mine. John chapter 16, Jesus says, you know, in a little while, you're not going to see me anymore. He's talking about what? He's dying. He wants to prepare them for this moment of deep sadness. In a little while, you will see me no more. But then, in just a little while longer, you will see me again. And then here's the reality check. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and you will mourn while the world around you is rejoicing. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A little while, you will see me no more. And you're going to see some terrible things. you see cancer and war, the death of a child, Tragic loss of a parent, joblessness, homelessness, 
human trafficking, evils for which our labels can't even begin to describe the horror. You're going to see that stuff. And you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve. But then your grief will turn to joy. And he gives this illustration. And, and men, this is an illustration that we can nod our heads and say, yeah, we understand. We don't understand this one. But here it is. A woman giving birth to a child. She has pain. Pain because her time has come. But when her child is born, she forgets all of the anguish. Why? Because of the joy of the child that is now born into the world. So it is with you, Jesus said. This may be your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and nobody will be able to take my joy from you. And in that day, you will no longer ask me anything because it's the nature of true joy that all of our questions grow silent. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name and your joy will be complete. Now, we read that text in just a little while, and we get stopped the same place the disciples get stopped, right? What did he mean in just a little while? What does he mean he's going away? What's a little while? And people will look at it and read it, and even deep students of the Bible will look at it and think, well, a little while. Could, could Jesus be talking about that space of time between when they see him executed on the cross and when they see him again, risen victorious from the grave, that was just a little while. A few days between sadness and victory, between Good Friday and the majesty of Resurrection Sunday. It was just a little while. Yeah, it could be that. Some people will say, maybe it's the space between when Jesus actually departs the earth after the resurrection, but he, he stuck around for a little while in order to, to give good news to everybody, to, to pass the baton so they could take it to the world. But 40 days later, he's ascended into heaven. And in between that time and this time, centuries, millennia, we've been holding on to the good news. We, we've been inspired by the story of his life. We've been transformed in Christ. And we anticipate the day that he's coming back. When is it going to be? I don't know, just a little while. Could it be that? What if the answer to both is yeah? I mean, why couldn't it be both? Doesn't it need to be both? Isn't it, isn't it the very resurrection that gives us faith that, that God has the power to do what God said that he's going to do, that evil is not the last word on our world? Isn't the joy that we can take in that kind of like a foretaste of that moment in glory when the joy will be unparalleled, unmeasurable? When our lives are literally bathed in majesty and glory without compare. The best response to suffering, not hopelessness, it's holiness. Not despair at what's going on. It's a deep connection to the one who said, I am the author and the perfecter of your souls. So I know some of you are you're in the middle of a season of real hardship. Some of you are suffering deeply. Some in this room, you have been through terrible catastrophe in, in recent months and years. You've lost a job. 
been a crisis in your health. You've lost somebody you love. People joining us online, you know this. You're dealing with a severe entrenched depression. And you know that happiness takes a hit. I mean, it's gone. There's never a word that you would use to describe your life. Happiness disappears. But not joy. Because joy is not rooted in the circumstances of your life. It is rooted in the one who is the author of your life and its perfecter. And the one who holds you until that moment when it's all made new. Somebody is listening right now and you need to hear this. Because you are so deeply depressed that you're not even sure it's worth it to get up tomorrow on Monday morning. Been thinking about just making it all stop. You're so filled with anxiety and fear that just the thought of getting out of bed is overwhelming to you. And it took all of your courage just to tune in this morning or come here this morning. And I want to tell you, in a world that so often stigmatizes that, that we are so proud of you for being here. Because for you, it's not about happiness, but it is about connectedness. You are holding on to something, and maybe it feels like you've just got the bottom rung, but that's enough. Because it turns out it's not a ladder, it's an arm, and it's a grasp that will not let you go. That's joy. That's why we're here as a community. It's why we exist. This is not a place for I have everything under control. My life is a nice orderly mess. (laughs) <laughs> is there such a thing, an orderly mess? Hey, nobody here is altogether t- uh, is an altogether kind of person, right? 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 Everybody can agree with that? At least if not for you, the person next to you, right? They certainly in fact, you can look at the person next to you and just say this. You're pretty messed up, but it's okay. Just, you're pretty, honey, you're pretty messed up. It's okay. Yeah. Wherever that lands in your life right now, here's a, here's a scripture for you. Go back later today, highlight this in, in your app or in your Bible. Psalm 30, verse 5. Lots of you are going to know this. So you know that this sets up a proposition, and then you come back with a declaration. Here's the proposition. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning. Let's do that. Weeping may last through the night, But joy comes in the morning. When is the morning? In just a little while. In just a little while. Our sorrow is only for a time. And it's a reminder during that time that in this world, all is not well. So maybe for some of you, that's the motivation to get involved in the needs of the world because all is not well. But that lack of wellness, that sorrow doesn't define us. It is not the central emotional space in which we live. We are people of joy. It means when we get angry, it means when we get fearful, it means when we get discouraged, that those things are not our heart's true home. Christian hope, and its emotional counterpoint, if you like, real joy, is the conviction that even though evil and brokenness and disease, these things are strong, they don't have the last word. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me just give you a couple more minutes. Have you got a couple minutes in you? Do you want to stretch? Anybody feeling joyful? Give yourself a little joyful bounce. Let's stretch a bit.
Okay. I want to talk about, but how this gets cultivated in your life. Because you don't always feel it. And maybe you don't associate this with faith because faith is kind of stoic and practiced. And let me give you some ideas for how to cultivate a life of emotional holiness. What are the habits of the heart that can make this real? Because holiness is not, and we've said this again and again, just a matter of behavior modification, just rooting out a few bad habits. Sin is not just bad choices, or bad behavior. Sin is a matter of the heart. And it probably has more to do with misguided affections and misguided desires than it does particular behaviors. Because behavior is always driven by those things, by desire, by emotion. So the goal of spiritual maturity, of holiness, isn't simply behavioral modification, like moral modification. It is, and this is what the ancients call it, it's the ordering of the affections. Ordering of the affections. Emotional holiness. There's a man lived in the 4th century. He was the bishop of an African city called Hippo. Uh, yeah, great name, eh? The city of Hippo. His name was Augustine. He wrote what is generally regarded as the first work of autobiography that we know of in the history of the world. The first time somebody in a sustained way reflected inward on the content of their life. And this is what he said. He said, in essence, the key to a transformed character, the key to a joyful life, the key to peace is having the right order of loves in our life. What did he mean? You meant, the problem is not so much that you love some things too much. The problem is that you love Jesus Christ too little in relation to those other things. You get the order right, and the emotions that flow from it, you get those right as well. The, the key to a transformed character, the essence of what it means to grow in holiness, Augustine said, is the reordering of your affections. This isn't an abstract thing. Holiness is a deeply emotional thing. An abstract set of ideas about Jesus, set of bullet points. This is when he lived, this is where he lived, this is what he said, this is where he find the record. That will not transform anyone. But a dynamic, grounded, living, emotion-filled relationship with Christ, a life in Christ, that will change everything. Because the first thing it does is it usurps the order of affections in your life. And it places everything subordinate to the one that matters the most. The guy who got this, and he got it repeatedly in the New Testament, was Paul. Paul was always going on about the ordering of the affections. No, he didn't use that language. But he had this phrase, this little triptych. How often does he talk about faith, hope, and love? Faith, hope, and love. You know, when he starts a letter, we start our letters, boy, we're boring. Dear so-and-so, Dear Kyoko, re the matter at hand. I am writing to... No, not Paul. This is how Paul starts out. This is First Thessalonians. We always thank God for you. And whenever we mention you, we think about your prayers, and we constantly remember you before God, our Father. What do we remember? Your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 1. Faith, hope, and love. Last week we spoke at length 
on love. And Pastor Sheldon, he did a crackerjack job of that. So we're not going to try and go over that ground again. Hopefully you've had a chance to reflect a little bit in your groups. But I want to talk about the other two, about faith and hope. And I want to talk about the emotions that spring from those things. So again, not just theological concepts, but something that's key to our emotional well-being. Faith. What is faith? Sometimes I think faith means that's that little thread that we hang by. Yeah, We're just dangling there, and we can't quite make the leap, but faith allows us to make that little leap. We're just, oh. Faith is what it means, it's what it feels to live in freedom from fear and anxiety and worry because we take seriously the call of Christ who said, don't worry about your life, Matthew 6, 25. Don't worry about your life. We choose not to live in anxiety. Instead, there's this peace. Jesus said it's a peace that will transcend the understanding of the world. We've learned to cast our cares on God, knowing that God cares for us. First Peter is really strong on that. That's faith, and there's, there's an emotional substance to it. It's not just a religious word. It is the wellspring of our emotional health, and it's part of a well-ordered life. What about hope? If faith is the antidote to fear. What is hope? Hope is, is like a, a posture of a radical resistance to despair, to the propensity we have towards cynicism and giving up on the world. Hope is so crucial in the world that is marked by the kind of suffering that we see, the disappointments that we face. In the language of the book of Hebrews, great little book in the New Testament, it says, hope is the anchor for our souls. To live in hope is to believe and to act and to feel that even though evil is strong, it does not have the last word. So if these are the contours... A life, the ordering of affections in a life. This is what it takes for for us to have our souls, this is the more language from the book of Hebrews, our souls strengthened by grace. And how do you do it? Have you got two more minutes in you? You've got two preacher's minutes, which is like four? Okay. Uh, I mean, who said six? Okay, it's six. You're right. It is six. But... Um, I want to give you this, and then you're going to unpack it in your groups uh, as you as you break out during the course of the week. But I want to give you, and this is from the, the book of uh, Gordon Smith, Called to be Saints, but he gets it from the Bible. So let's just say this is from the Bible. Um, three practices that, that you might want to, to, to think about as a way of anchoring your soul in, in a way that will foster emotional health and holiness. And the first one you get, or I hope you get, because you're already here. The first is the practice of worship. I hope that you are here primarily because you have an appetite for worship. How can you miss the joy that flows from the faces of our worship leaders, right? That, that, that is not contrived. You can't fake that stuff, right? Because... Yeah. 
It's there in every pluck of the bass guitar. It's there in every syncopation of the drum beat. It's there in every note of the piano. And I know it's real because it's still there long after they've stopped playing. It's still there in the middle of the week. I hope you've come with an appetite for worship. You know, to be honest, there's some people who, who kind of sneak in here at about 40 minutes to, to, to 12 and think, I just come for the message. Like, but you missed it. You, you missed it. I mean, yes, the message is part of worship, but you missed the rest of the banquet. Worship is the supreme expression of our joy. It's what fuels us, and it's what releases joy in us. It is a radical reorientation of our life towards the risen, ascended, victorious Jesus. And it is a real-time encounter. So we are not just singing about Jesus. We are singing because we know that he is as manifestly present in the room today with us right now as he ever has been. Amen? Amen. Amen. Worship. Don't miss on worship. And in saying that, I'm not saying don't miss on church. Of course, don't miss that either. But don't miss out on worship. Second, friendship. And that sounds kind of pedestrian. But again, Pastor Sheldon makes sure that we know this is not pedestrian. Second only to worship and prayer. Friendship is an act of freedom and joyous participation in the family of God and in the joy of the Lord. It absolutely is. A person who lives in joy, a person who is mature in Christ, will assuredly be marked by a few of these deep and life-giving relationships. Friendship. And I say friendship because our lives are filled with relationships. We have colleagues and neighbors. Uh, we have acquaintances. We probably have family members. But those aren't those kind of deep, life-changing friendships. C.S. Lewis was big on this. He said, we ought to choose our friends carefully and cultivate those things well. Because our friendship circle, it can become like a school of holiness in our life. And it will make us better or it will make us worse. He put it this way, he said, it makes good men better, it makes bad men worse. Friendship. Find a way to cultivate holiness in a group of people that feed your soul and whose soul you feed. And the third one, the last one, is the practice of Sabbath. And and I don't want to confuse, again, Sabbath with uh, necessarily Sunday or church attendance. It can be. For lots of people, it is. But Sabbath is something that is based on the fundamental rhythms of creation itself. And here's what's at stake. On the Sabbath, we learn to settle. We stop all of the striving, all of the searching, all of the pursuit, and we just rest in the words that God used, said, it's good. Just a few moments. You just pause in life and you look around and you think around and said, there is still good in the world. And if you don't see it in the world, you ought to be able to say there is still good in God. Do we really believe in the goodness of God still, church? Do we believe in the goodness of God? Can we not pause on the Sabbath and say we are going to relish that and we're going to delight in that? We're going to be content right now in this moment, in this time. We're not going to worry about all the other moments the ones ahead or the ones behind. In Sabbath, we learn the power of play. How many of you know how to play? Be honest. Are you playful? That's pathetic. Let's ask again. Do you know how to play? Okay. By the way, there's a typo in the notes. So if you go through the notes, you see the power to plan. Terrible typo. Sabbath is not the day for planning. Sabbath is a day 
for playing. And Sabbath, we learn the power of feasting. Is there any place where you delight in the goodness of God more than when you're setting a table with friends and just enjoying that time together? So here's Sabbath. Gordon Smith says, we let go of our work. We set it aside knowing that it belongs to God. We let go of our need to worry and all the anxiety that we carry around in our bodies. We let let go of our need to consume and accumulate more and we just rest. That's Sabbath. And it will be emotional blood that will give to the life of your soul. Worship, friendship, Sabbath. All of them in their own way are kind of like an act of defiance against the pressures of our world and they extend the capacity for joy. Well, that was two minutes become six. I want to end just by bringing us full circle. The central dynamic of all of this is our rootedness in Christ. Say that, in Christ. Say it again, in Christ. Say it to somebody beside you, we are in Christ. Say it to yourself, I am in Christ. Jesus proclaims so that when you, uh, that when you abide in him and, and he in you, your joy may be complete. Because the other things in your life may come and go. You may love to run. I love to run. I can't. i got arthritis in my knees. It hurts now. You may love being with your friends, but you can't cling to them because one day you're going to have to say goodbye. You may love your garden, but you won't always have the pleasure of trees and flowers and shrubs. We've been plowing ours under a little bit. We hope it comes back in the spring, but it's kind of gone right now. What Christians have known and affirmed now for two millennia is that for followers of Jesus, for saints, for holy ones, our deepest joy is found in him. It's not where you live. It's whose presence in which you live. It's not what you have. It's he who has you. And that means Jesus is it for me. Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus in me. Jesus beside me. Jesus around me. Jesus for me. No matter what. I may be in trouble. I may be in debt. I may be in prison or suffering in a hospital. But if I'm in Christ, I'm good to go. Let's do that. Let's stand up. You've been sitting a long time. Let's stand up together. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. There may be lots of difficulty and sorrow. If that's the case, sorrow lasts for the night, but joy. For some of you, this may be a season of great rejoicing already. And we just want to stand with you and say we're delighting in what is happening in your life. But for all of us, let's pray together. God, I pray now for my brothers and sisters here in this room. Because, God, there are some people here today who are filled in these moments with gratitude. Wonderful things going on, great relationships great satisfaction in their work, friendships, opportunities stretched out before them. And God, we don't take any of it for granted. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. And then, God, there are other people who maybe are facing really challenging difficulties. The loss of health, the loss of loved ones, problems, pain. God, we have only one hope in that moment, and it's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame. So God, would you bring joy into every heart here, everyone watching online? Would you penetrate every circumstance of every life with a joy that transcends circumstance that death itself cannot defeat? And right now, Lord, kind of like a stake in the ground, 
We proclaim our joy in you. We offer you our hearts, our worship, our gratitude, our lives, our eternities, and we do it in the name of the great joy bringer himself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks. Please be seated.